Hi, this is Surya Devi, and welcome to A Voice for Love. I'm a world music artist and healer from Vancouver, Canada, with over two decades' experience serving individuals from all walks of life. We're going to be speaking with leaders and visionaries from around the world in the field of art, music, activism, health, education, spirituality, and more to talk about what it means to be a voice for love. We're going through massive changes on the planet right now, and I believe that what the world needs more than ever are people who are aligned, heart-led, and who can speak from the soul to help usher in even bigger shifts that will elevate us all into a more harmonious existence together. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey there, everyone. This is Surya. Welcome to A Voice for Love. And I am beyond excited today to uh, introduce my very special guest to you, Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much. And it was so nice of us to color coordinate. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We're both, if anyone's just listening, we're both wearing like the same color pink and beads and the whole thing. (laughs) It's wonderful. So please, um, Dr. Chowdhury, please tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Um, Well... Where to begin? I can tell you about my teenage son, but that will bore everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like every other teenage son on the planet. I'm a trained neurologist. And so I have an MD in neurology. Um, and in addition to neurology, I also trained in Ayurvedic medicine. And so my approach to my clinical patients was in combination of Ayurvedic medicine and traditional neurology that you would get through the medical training. Um, And then in addition to that, I have started a, what's the right way to describe it? I guess a a medical excavation of some of the Siddha records, which are over 8,000 years old in South India. And it was from there that I was really inspired to write my second book on on sound medicine as we're starting to explore these ancient technologies that are only starting to make sense to us now because of what we are finding from modern physics and modern medicine. Oh, wow. This is so interesting. So I didn't really know what Siddha medicine was other than... Nobody does. Well, actually, it is a... We were talking a little bit before we started here about intuition, which we're going to get into with you because this is part of what's so fascinating about your story is that you, you know, all of a sudden have this, you know, sort of magical... I I hear that you're... What is your nickname in in India where you're from? Like the, the, the lady who sees through people or the doctor who sees through people? Yes. Yes. I think I've got several nicknames in India, which is ironic because... Because India, of course, has like great masters who do all of this. But when it comes in the form of a foreign woman, even though I'm Indian, I'm considered foreign in India, in a white coat as a medical doctor, then all of a sudden it looks like a unicorn. <laughs> it's incredible, though. So can you tell us a little bit about Siddha medicine? So Siddha medicine is probably the oldest medical tradition, recorded medical tradition and Um, in the world. And people may have heard of Ayurvedic medicine, which is also one of the older traditions, but Siddha medicine actually even predates that. And there's a tremendous amount of overlap between the two. But when we start to get into areas that I call, you know, quantum biology, like when you start to get into um, some of the, the therapies that would require, honestly, a degree in quantum physics to understand. That is the specialty of Siddha medicine. So that's how I would describe it kind of from a Western standpoint is it's understanding biology on a quantum level and understanding the therapies um, of biology from that same level. I think the way that, you know, people that are outside of the scientific or medical field would appreciate it is, they were in tune with the vibrations of nature and they understood really the song of nature. And so they were able to become one with that underlying energy that connects us to all of life. And from there, they could see the kind of full spectrum 
of what human life was, not just the physical form of it, although the drawings they had of um, the organs, the nervous system, everything. I mean, it's just absolutely spectacular. And all of that came from their perception of it, meaning not from, you know, cutting up cadavers, but the way that they perceived it. So all of that was there, but their perception of the underpinnings and the underworkings of the subtler fields of the human being um, is really what is, is quite remarkable. Oh, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And so was this knowledge sort of lost? Like what happened? Why is it that no one really knows about this or it's not such a commonly known thing today? It's, you know, it's, it's a very, very powerful set of knowledge. And to say whether it was lost or not, or whether it was hidden, is, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's hard to differentiate because medicine is something, first of all, the, the lineage has, has been kept intact. So in South India, you have lineages either going from master disciple or certain families and much of the writing was placed on palm leaves. So even the leaves, even the records that we're looking at, there are these delicate little leaves. Um, and so the writing has been preserved that way from kind of one generation to the next. But so the medicine is something that it's such a powerful form of medicine that if the consciousness of humanity is not prepared to receive it, it wouldn't be there. Um, so even though it's been a continuous lineage in South India in, you know, held either in temples or in certain families, the, I guess the mythology around it is that it surfaces or it becomes widely known only when the consciousness of humanity has the capacity, you know, to use it correctly. Because even if we begin to look at just the power of sound, and we know this just from our daily life, in conversation, how words can be used as weapons, right? How you can break somebody down just by the words you're telling them. Um, I mean, just looking at the way that we raise our children, so much of what our entire life becomes as a human being is undoing some of the negative messaging that we got early on. Now, imagine if it was widely known which mantras could, you know, um, have certain destructive qualities if used in a certain way. So, you know, it's, it's knowledge that is, I would say, protected um, and then brought out when humanity needs it. And for whatever reason, it seems like this is the time where some of the teachings of it are coming back up to the surface. Oh, I love that because that's a message that I've actually gotten continuously like from my, like in meditation is that there's so many new technologies that are awaiting us, but they will not be given until the consciousness of humanity reaches a certain point. It's exactly right. So it's exactly that. So that, that is incredible. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more just for anyone who doesn't know about these palm leaves and palm leaf libraries, because I find this absolutely fascinating. From the first time I heard about it, I was like, there's what? Like the what? It's, it's just yeah. Well, I mean, and you have to remember that the, this tradition had so many technologies that we don't know of. And so when you look at these fragile writings on palm leaves, I think it can give the impression of, oh, they must have been very, very primitive. And that's why it had to be written down on these palm leaves. Well, the palm leaves, the writings, first of all, they're written in code. And it's written in an ancient dialect that's not even, you know, uh, it, it's essentially extinct. There's very, very few people who are even able to read and translate this. But so even to be able to read and understand them because they're written in code, and they're written in poem form. Um, but even though they're written as poetry, they have actual recipes and actual instructions that can be translated into particular compounds or particular techniques. So it gives the impression that they must not have you know, had like printing presses or, you know, things like that. But the reality is the, the written part is a very, very small part of the knowledge that gets, you know, transferred. And again, it's difficult to understand these other technologies when we don't have kind of the consciousness to experience on a regular basis, these, you know, these other realms, just as you're describing that, how you intuit certain things. So what my experience has been, is just being around them, 
um, they're just a vibrational quality to them that even just being in their presence, you're getting information in other ways. So it's not just what is written there, but just being associated with them, just being in proximity to them, there are ways of opening up aspects of it that go far beyond than just these writings in this ancient language, you know, ancient Tamil language on these fragile um, palm, re- um, palm leaves. And some of the people who are working more closely with them, you know, than I am, um, they know like as you decode them, like you have to translate them, put them on paper, and then every like 21st page, like you figure out the code that every 21st page is where the next part of the instruction will be. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a very, very intricate system. And I guess one of the Siddha's guises is often in its, its simplicity, the lineage in general. Many of the Siddhas, the way that they were described, many people wouldn't even know that they were in the presence of one because oftentimes they looked like some beggar or, you know, some vagabond. I mean, there's, there's a disguise of simplicity in the entire Siddha system that I think is just a reflection of um, how kind of fundamental their knowledge was and how powerful their knowledge is that people had to be able to go beyond what they saw to be able to really connect to it. And so the palm leaves are very much the same. I mean, literally they're, they're rewritten. I think it's about every 250 or 300 years they're transcribed from um, one uh, lineage, you know, within like one lineage and they're, they're hidden in different temples and we don't even know where all of them are. The project I was involved in India had a donation of truckloads of these and it was like, okay, let's begin. <laughs> let's begin figuring out how do you even read these? <laughs> wow, what an undertaking, because I can imagine that, like, how do they even last for that long so that they're still legible and able to read? How does that work? You know, I, I have not been able to figure that out either, because the first time I saw it, I, I thought for sure this couldn't be it, because it was in, you know, the old um, photo albums. I don't even know if people keep photo albums anymore, but the old photo albums, you know, where you had, like, that plastic covering, you had, like, kind of the little pocket with the plastic covering, the first time I saw them, they were in one of those and, you know, they were, we were just going through them and I was just like, this, this cannot possibly be them. <laughs> you know, it, it's a little, it's a little bit like you go and you're just petting a unicorn, you know, <laughs> or like you're having tea with a leprechaun. I mean, it's just, it's something so kind of mythical and to do something so casual with it. Um, I have no idea how they're maintained. And when you actually look at them, they look so fragile, so unbelievably fragile. And yet they've withstood, you know, the test of time. I've always been fascinated by the stories of the palm leaves ever since I've been to India. And I've heard about people going to these and I never understood because they tell me, oh, you can just go anywhere. There's these libraries all over India and they contain information about everybody who's ever lived. And I was like, what? And people have actually, I know people, I, I haven't gone myself, but I know many people who have gone and gotten their palm leaf and it was very much all accurate information about them and their life and all these things. So it's absolutely yes. fascinating. This is one of the ways that sacred language um, was preserved, was on these palm leaves. And so what you're referring to, that's not exactly down the Siddhar um, tradition, but this is, it's reflective of the way that this information was stored and kept and even with what you're talking about, yes, they exist. And they're just these amazing libraries and they're all through South India. And when I say amazing though, you know, totally inconspicuous. I mean, there's nothing about it that you would think, oh, there's privileged information lying, you know, behind these, behind these walls. But again, the Siddha tradition and these traditions, even with the Nadi leaves is what you're talking about. Um, they are operating on a system and I look at it as like a mathematical web that whoever is supposed to come into contact with them will. And so it's just operating on a completely different kind of um, organizing system than what we're accustomed to. (laughs) Right. And so, so I understand that like on a spiritual level and I'm wondering if you have sort of, is there a more, like you mentioned like a mathematical formula, is there a more scientific explanation for that that you found in your science research or? I mean, science, you know, science is barely just being able to, 
explain why sound works. So like when we think of our science, our science is, you know, it's, it's, it's so young um, still. Um, and so even things that are conspicuous, even things that are, you know, very, very obvious, like things that are biological or have a biological impact, even those things we're just barely being able to explain. And because we've had to have had, you know, a quantum physics basis to be able to say, okay, hold on, there's that which we see, but then that which is very small and unseen behaves differently than that which is large and seen. Um, but, you know, we can take some of the concepts within it, um, like when we talk about the concept of the zero-point field, of this field that contains all knowledge is kind of outside of time, outside of space, and has infinite amount of energy. The, the fact that we're even acknowledging that such a field exists, and in the Vedic tradition, the Siddha tradition, they referred to that as the Akashic field, and so in that field, in these Eastern traditions, they always refer to the Akashic records. And those records are supposed to, you know, hold timeless information, information that is independent of time and space. And so for those who were able to tap into that, to be able to pull that information, put it, you know, onto these palm leaves, and then with having the intention when you do anything in that field creates kind of, you know, I like to look at it as like a mathematical ripple effect that at the right time, you know, in the right place, um, these two things would suddenly be met again. And we have examples of that, you know, even in quantum physics of electrons that have interacted with each other, you know, even if you try to separate them, they remember there's a memory held. And so that memory, if that's present, even on the, our most fundamental level, that memory is held within us for these major life events. And I would say for anybody who has come into contact with a real, like a true, um, you know, uh, not elite, not elite reading um, it's, it's, it's very, very much one of these big life events where you go, oh my goodness, how could this much have been known about me 2000 years ago? Yes. It's fascinating. I, yeah. I, I met so many people that not, not so many, but a number of different people. And now that you mentioned it, they were all quite very aligned people themselves. So I'm not surprised that they like that for whatever reason that that information reached them. Cause I guess it just means that they were destined at some point to return back to India and return to that place and that that was already known about them. So it's absolutely fascinating. So I guess that kind of brings me to another thing I'd love to talk about, which is, um, you know, how you got into Siddha medicine and that you have a, like a teacher or a guru that you work with. And I'm, you have a wonderful story of how you, you know, you know I think you heard about them and jumped on a plane the next day to go see them. And I'd love to, for you to share a little bit about your teacher as well. Absolutely. So I have a spiritual teacher in India, um, in South India, in um, uh, Tamil Nadu, um, which is a state in um, South India. And the, you know, I had heard about Siddha records and Siddha medicine when I was studying about Ayurvedic medicine, but it was always like the mythical part of Ayurveda. You know, it was always like kind of the occult, the part that nobody could really point to and, and be like, and this is where you go. Even though there are schools of Siddha medicine in South India, that's still different from the actual Siddha tradition. You know, that's an institutionalized version of it. Um, so it was always there, and I had spent actually about 10 years at one point trying to track down somebody actually connected to the lineage. And, of course, it's the kind of lineage that you can't track anybody down. <laughs> I mean, it has to be something, again, that's just kind of orchestrated. It's something that's just much bigger than just one human um, intention. And, um, you know, I would read about, you know, um, yogis that had gone into the Siddha medicine and had performed things like Kaya Kalpa, which kept them alive for hundreds of years and was just absolutely fascinated. And there's a point where when you are looking for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and at the end of each rainbow, when it's not there, there's a point where you go, okay, this must not exist. Um, and so I kind of, you know, backed up my intention for finding it and just said, okay, this is just some interesting thing that happened in the past, but 
um, any real connection to it in this lifetime is, is unlikely. Um, and then suddenly, um, you know, this is many, many years ago when I had started that search. And then um, there was a moment in my life where there were just a lot of things kind of changing and just a swirling energy of like something new is about to be birthed. And it was in that time that I had met my spiritual teacher. I actually had heard about her from another um, physician friend of mine, a cardiologist. And we were teaching a Ayurvedic um, course at uh, Scripps Integrative Center. And at lunch, she just happened to mention, oh, I'm going to India to meet my spiritual teacher. And as soon as I heard the name, I just knew. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be there. I will be there with you. And this is back when there weren't e-visas. So the, the idea of getting a visa in time to be able to get on a plane in two weeks was just nearly impossible. But I bought the ticket. The visa arrived literally the day before we were supposed to board. And I got there. And as soon as I got there, there was just such a deep remembering of something bigger than myself, some huge intention in life. Of course, I had no idea what it was. I just knew it was really important that I was there and that this was going to be a significant experience. But I had only planned on five days because that's all I could do, um, you know, suddenly in my uh, schedule. So I went, had this experience. Um, and then after that, just every year, you know, I, I would go there. There was such a draw and there was such a feeling of coming home. Um, and so it was through my spiritual teacher over the years, she had mentioned that there was a project she wanted to do. And I was like, well, I'm on board. You know, I had, of course, not having any clue what it was. <laughs> and this went on and I thought like, oh, I'm going to be the perfect, you know, choice for this because this is my passion. I would love, you know, never knowing what it was actually going to entail. I thought it was going to be a project in Ayurveda. And it was about, I think it was a nine or 10 years later from that conversation during one of my visits there, she just, you know, all of a sudden was like, okay, you can move to India now. And, you know, we have these, so the records and we're going to start a center and we're going to, you know, look into this. And I was, you know, I was just dumbfounded because <laughs> like, what? You actually have the records and we're actually going to translate the formulations, make them, give them to people, study the effects. I mean, to me, it was just, it, it, I, I'm trying to think of another conversation that would make, you know, it would be like if somebody came and, hey, here's my spaceship. We're going to go visit Jupiter today, you know, and you're just like, what? It was so far outside of anything I would have, um, you know, expected. And, and then the journey began. <laughs> and then it goes on and on. The journey began that never ended because it was still ongoing from some other time and space continuum. Okay, so, so you're already in the process of, uh, have you actually gotten some of the formulations and have you gotten to that stage yet? We did. So we had actually started. So when I was in India, we had started to translate some of the formulations, start to make some of them. And we had opened up the center, built the center, and people were starting to take, we were having just phenomenal results. And that was just kind of, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and then the pandemic began. And so, of course, which is very typical kind of of the Siddha lineage of you start you stop, you start, you stop. I mean, there's a lot of gaps because everything you're doing with that is in alignment with some kind of other timing. And so um, I was there for three years and a lot of the material that I had gotten was around mantras in particular. That was a lot of the material that, um, you know, I was involved in. And um, even though we started to do the formulations and everything, that has, you know, kind of come to a stop because of, of um, the impacts of the pandemic on the scale that we were doing. But what did come out of that was, and this was the part that my spiritual teacher wanted me to focus on anyways, was this concept of what exactly is the science behind mantras. And when she first talked to me about this, like, what science? You know, like, I mean, like, you know, I know that there's science about the impact of meditation and all of that, but like beneath that, 
what science really is there. And so that began then my kind of excavation into this um, process of understanding what exactly is sound? How do we understand sound today? And how do these ancient seers, you know, see sound? And what does that mean? How did their understanding of sound, what does that mean for us today in terms of using it as a healing modality, both audible and inaudible? Um, and so that is, you know, kind of the first um, unearthing um, of the information there for me. And I, what I found and is that really, if you don't understand sound, it's very hard to understand anything else that they did because sound and understanding and sound again is only that small you know the small range of vibrations that our human ear can pick up and so when we say sound we're really talking about something much bigger but the vibrational nature of the universe and the vibrational nature of human life if you don't understand that first it's just nearly impossible to understand anything else they did because if you don't understand that everything else they did seems miraculous but when you begin to understand this then everything that comes out of that deep understanding of life, then it's not miraculous, it's just scientific. And this is what I find absolutely fascinating and what I've loved about, um, I've been listening to your book, like on the audio book, and I just love how you offer so many um, scientific explanations because, you know, I think we all know like a little bit that we learn from yoga or maybe in our like mantra training, you know, that the, that the Sanskrit language is very energetic and, you know, it corresponds to different energy centers and the chakras and all this, but it's, it, I know that it goes so much deeper than that. Yes. And when you start to look at the way that the Siddhas and, you know, these ancient seers the way that they perceived what I call the human biofield, which is really the sheaths, that, the sheaths that were covering that central consciousness, which, of course, doesn't have any time or space. As you begin to understand that, then it's helpful to understand, you know, then it makes sense to understand why sound is so, you know, so sacred, number one. Also, why it's so important for biology because sound was associated with, it is, um, it correlates with the first sheath that covers that consciousness and makes it um, bound, okay? It's the first sheath that gives it, I don't want to say physical in the way that we know it, because I don't mean the human body, but it's the first thing that makes it um, non, you know, it, it localizes it. It finally makes it localized, and that first sheet is called the Anandamaya Kosha or the sheath of bliss. And so, and that sheath is said to hold all of the secrets of nature. Again, there's five sheets that come from, you know, total that come around this central energy of consciousness. But it's the Anandamaya Kosha that is the innermost sheath that is the most related to that inner consciousness that has the most proximity to it. And that is the birthplace of sound. That is where we go to when we are connected to sacred sound or sounds of nature or sounds that have, you know, cosmic energy associated with them. And that is why sound is such a profound transformative tool. Oh, it really is. And it can really be felt. Um, you know, for my experience of working with sound and especially mantras is, you know, and I have a Tibetan Buddhist teacher that I work with and I call it like, he used to do like mantra aerobics with us. And we'd go to the temple and we'd sometimes chant for like, you know, six, eight hours straight. And oh, afterwards wow. you yeah. feel like a real, um, like a mind workout. You can actually feel yeah. it. And, and actually I'd love to talk about the chakra mantra as well, because I've been listening to it and chanting along with you too. And um, I find that very, very powerful. I could feel it from the minute that even if I just listen to it I can I can really hear it so and I was fascinated by it and I was like searching for it on iTunes and I was like I need to get this because uh, I was it wasn't one that I was familiar with and actually I've never seen anyone not that I know every mantra but you know I know quite a few and I hadn't seen that one so is that a very and I'd love to know more about that yeah, absolutely so I, I had never seen this mantra before people have probably heard of the bija mantras for the yes. different chakras mm -hmm. Um, and this is a mantra that combines the bija mantras 
with the mantra Om Namah Shivaya. And I've never seen this. And it's, it's apparently it's a very, very ancient mantra. I mean, like very, 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 very ancient. And the significance of this mantra, and by the way, I just have to say this, it's so interesting because, you know, this is the first time that I'm in kind of more of the musical world. Um, this book has connected me to many, many um, musicians and um, more of the art, artistic uh, you know, professions, which I have just absolutely loved. And I have to say, musicians, because you're so in tune with sound, they have such an exceptional experience when they do this mantra. I mean, they really, they're like, oh my gosh, I felt that the first time. I mean, I think it's just absolutely amazing because not that physicians can't have that experience, but typically, you know, most physicians, tend, we tend to be pretty heady. I mean, the training kind of pulls a lot of the energy up there. And it takes some time to really begin to actually feel how the energy is moving. But when physicians do this, I mean, when musicians do this mantra, they're just like, oh my God, you know? <laughs> what is this? Um, so going back to the, the mantra, the reason why it's, it's so significant, or one of the reasons I should say is it incorporates those, those bija mantras to the chakras which the chakras represent the manifest world. So it represents the Shakti side or the divine feminine energy. And the mantra of Om Namah Shivaya represents the divine masculine side or the unmanifest side. And so what you have is this interweaving of both manifest and unmanifest, both Shiva and Shakti in one mantra uh, and it's activated that the combination of that energy is being activated in every single major chakra as you're doing it. So it's a very, very sacred and profound way of bringing these two elements together. And what my spiritual teacher told me is this is actual, the, the, the energy behind this mantra, the resonance behind this mantra is the energy that brings human DNA together. You know, those two strands coming together, male and female energy coming together. And that's ultimately the energy that as it joins together and then moves upward, leads to, you know, these higher um, levels of consciousness where then our perception is significantly expanded um, to be able to, use senses that go far beyond just our physical senses. So that's just what the spectacular nature of, of, of this mantra. And, you know, it's, it's very much kind of akin to the entire, the tradition of, I mean, it's, it's so simple in one sense. Like when, when I got it, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, of course you need to have the masculine and the feminine. And you would have one aspect that represents all of the major energy centers in the body, and then the other that represents the vibration of, you know, kind of that silent, um, non-unmanifested energy. But, you know, yes, it's so simple, but, you know, as far as I know, nobody had really unraveled that. And so once, um, you know, she gave me, and she, and my spiritual zero gave and said, go and share this with the world. i I almost feel like the entire book, one of the purposes of the book, in addition to sharing the science, that there is a science behind, you know, sound, um, was just to share this mantra. But this mantra is just so profound. And that's also why we say don't do it more than 20 minutes because it shifts so much that you want to give yourself an opportunity to integrate those changes as well. Yes. And thank you for saying that because that is such an important point. I think um, people can sometimes go off the deep end with different spiritual techniques, especially yes. when they feel good. And it really is important to remember that just like a medicine or any treatment that you would take, you have to follow the right, you know, guidelines. Like if you, somebody gives you, you know, a pill or a prescription, you don't take the whole bottle, you know, you take one right. at a time. So it is, it's very important for that. So thank you for saying that. And I can actually, I could feel it and I could even feel it before I heard it because I was having a hard time downloading it because of um, like the iTunes, iMusic, just that, that kind of thing. But I was like so excited to find it because as soon as I even saw it, it's like chakra chant, I was like, I, I have to know what this is. Like, what is this? <laughs> it cracks me up because 
you know, previously, I don't know if I'm still tone deaf. I don't know if I've chanted so much over the last few years in India that I'm no longer tone deaf, but previously I was tone deaf, um, which was also why I was surprised that I was chosen for this project. So I was like, don't you want somebody who's a musician who actually knows how to be able to do this? Um, but when we made the CD for this, you know, for, for this mantra, I was just so surprised at the sound that came out of me. And I was like, how on earth did a tone deaf neurologist like get put into this position where I now am making a CD for a chakra mantra and even was invited to um, a, TV, a national TV show and I had to sing like for millions of people. And I said, it just cracks me up kind of life's sense of humor that of all the people who could be doing this, it's, you know, it's, it's me, a tone-deaf neurologist. <laughs> it's divine, and I, I can actually tell you why, and this is something that one of my teachers always told me, because part of my journey with um, music and sound was I grew up always singing, but I really rejected it for about almost 10 years of my life. I just rejected it and was like, I'm never going to be an artist, and, you know, through that to the wayside. And that's actually when I started studying the healing arts and energy healing and stuff. Mm. But then when I really wanted to get back to singing, I met one of my teachers who is both a healer and a singer. And she, she said, come to me and I'll help you build your voice again. So I would go do voice work with her. And at the end of every session, she would teach me a different mantra. And she Mm. would say, work with the mantra because the mantra will actually clear and heal the voice. And if you think about it, like we say this thing, like in tune, like, Oh, I'm in tune with this or that. And so it's Literally, it's an alignment that can come. So it is one of the incredible side effects that can come as a result of working with mantra. So I think actually you're the perfect person to demonstrate. <laughs> I'm the perfect example. For my that family, reason, exactly. My family actually laughed when I said, you know, I it was so clear in my meditation, like make a CD and make it. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, and I, I mean, my, I've meditated for so long that I know not to question the intuition that comes through there. Um, but my family laughed so hard when I said that and they were like, you, and I was like, yeah, I'm making a CD. But when they heard it, they were just so surprised. I'm like, I have the same reaction. And I think it is, it's all of the, the chanting and especially being in the temples. I find myself singing all the time, which of course my 12 year old son is so excited that his mom loves to sing out in public now. Um, but it is, it definitely does, you know, unlock that. And just like, chanting unlocks, you know, the throat chakra, which by the way, is associated with that inner, innermost coding. We're talking about the Ananda Maya Kosha, which is the innermost coding um, to, you could say, you know, the soul or the self, whatever you want to, you know, say, whatever you want to call it. But the throat chakra is directly related, you know, to that innermost field which is why as you begin to activate that and as you begin to open this, it becomes, you know, I don't want to say it becomes more difficult, but it's really, it's impossible not to be saying your truth or living your truth. Like it opens so much that you, you can't be anything other than truthful about who you really are and what's important and, you know, honest, not that it has to be in an unloving way, But as each of these chakras begins to open up, the resonant frequencies of each of those chakras carries with it certain characteristics. And as those characteristics become enlivened through the practice of, you know, um, using like these bija mantras, like the chakra mantra, it alters your physiology. And I guess, yes, I am a really good example of somebody who is just absolutely, I would never have sang in public ever. I mean, I would have spared anybody you know, that experience. I'm now, and I'm so drawn to it now. And I find myself singing all the time. My husband's always surprised, you know, that he's like, I can't believe that sound came out of you. But that's a very kind of obvious, you know, experience of it. But the same thing can happen with your liver. The same thing can happen like with your colon, you know, the same thing can happen with different organ systems in the body where there are also blocks and obstacles And that's really the beauty of sound medicine is that it opens these fields from the most fundamental level. Like before you get structured into grosser and denser vibrations, 
before that structure happens, sound is working on the level that is the most intimate with, you know, with the soul or the self or the divine, whatever you want to call it. Sound is right there. You know, it's just layered right on top of that. And that's why when people master sound um, and they master the throat chakra, they have tremendous power. Absolutely. I, oh, I, just, I just love it. And I love that that's so much about what this work is. That's why this podcast is called A Voice for Love. And I'm putting out a course of the same name. And because so many people say to me, I can't sing, I can't sing, I can't sing. And I'm like, yes, you can. Yes, you actually can. I yes. was one of those people. Yeah. It's just opening up that center. It really, really is. And the beauty of it, which, you know, you, you already know this because you work with this. But when you open up that center, it's not just about being able to sing. When you open that center, there's an integration that begins to happen because the throat center, you know, which again is a seed of sound and is associated with that and then the Mayakosha, this is the gateway. This is the bridge between heart and mind. And when you have heart and mind, when that gateway opens up, there's a higher intelligence that comes out. So there's actually an intelligence described in the Vedic and Siddha tradition that sits within the heart that only when it rises, once the throat chakra is open, only when it rises, that is when the intellect expands far beyond anything that you can find in book knowledge. That is where, you know, the genius happens. That is where the expansive understanding of the workings of nature, the working of humanity happens. And so many inventors, you know, they talk about how they have to get into that space, either by going out in nature or so many artists would be inspired, like, you know, by a muse, same thing. It would help to open up, you know, that heart chakra. And then with that surging energy, when the throat chakra is open, there is a level of creativity that comes out that we are even now able to describe from a scientific standpoint, you know, from the work that the Heart Math Institute is doing to show that there are aspects of the electrical system in the heart that actually modulate the brain, meaning when they get activated, they change the way that your brain is wired. They change the way that your neurochemistry is firing. And that is just absolutely phenomenal when science starts to catch up to what healers have experienced and what the ancients have written about, that there is this hidden connection in the heart and that connection can be amplified and that connection can, um, you know, be, be very quickly, you know, accelerated by opening up the throat chakra through the use of sound. It's fascinating because what I sort of, you know, one of my intuitive downloads that I keep getting is like what, what humanity is trying to do right now is we're trying to move out of the lower three chakras and then into the heart. And then after that comes the throat and the expression. And you can see in our world where we're very much, you know, all the conflict that's going on is because of like greed and desire and power and control and manipulation and all this. But I see so many people coming into the heart. And now I feel the next phase is coming where many of us are going to be called to have to speak and be a voice and and speak out against a lot of the things that are going on that are really not in alignment for anyone really because you know I'm curious does the how does the Siddha medicine point to us um, all being interconnected with one another does is that well the descriptions you know they're not dissimilar to the way that quantum physicists describe it which is really you know this I mean like a divine matrix this web of energy that when we get into our subtlest aspects of our physiology, of our makeup, of our actual makeup, um, we look more like energy than we do particle. And that energy is, it has a field effect. A field effect means it's not localized. You know, you can't say it's only here and not there. And it's not bound by time. And so when you start to look at the way that the quantum physicists view energy on a quantum level so on the smallest possible scale measurable the descriptions are very much like the poems you know in the siddhas the 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 siddha records and what so many mystics and so many saints from around the world they've they've all said the same thing 
really, you know, that it is just one energy that, you know, a rock thrown here, a rock thrown at somebody is a rock thrown back at yourself. Everything that you are putting out is coming back to you. There was a, many years ago, I think it was over, it was over a decade ago, um, when I was back when I was practicing um, neurology um, more traditionally, even though I was incorporating Ayurvedic medicine, you know, I was in a hospital system, all of that. Um, I had gone to India to meet with one of the Ayurvedic physicians that I used to refer my patients to and um, for Panchakarma, which is a detoxification therapy in Ayurveda. And when I went to go see him, he was just this lovely, lovely man. I mean, multiple generations of, of Ayurvedic physicians in his family, just a really expansive person. And he said something to me then, which I really didn't understand. I think I just couldn't understand the repercussions of it yet because I hadn't felt that yet in my life. And he said, your patients love you so much, you know, that you have planted so much love like in their lives those you're there's going to be a great blessing that comes back to you because of that. And of course, at the time I just thought, yeah, I mean, the blessing is just doing the work that I'm doing. I mean, I'm, you know, I already feel blessed doing what I'm doing. It really, it wasn't until these opportunities in India and the things that I got to witness there, you know, so many of which I have yet to even write about or share because I'm trying to even figure out the framework for how do you even explain some of these things that seem like miracles. And so we're first just starting with let's explain sound. But it was when I was given those opportunities where I was just like, this is, these are such massive gifts. These are beyond anything that you could pay for. His words really came back to me that you don't know when those seeds are going to sprout that you sow. And so just keep sowing love as much as you possibly can, every opportunity you have, even under the worst of circumstances, just keep planting those seeds of love because when they sprout, they oftentimes bloom all at once and you're kind of overwhelmed with the love that comes pouring back you know, to you. And it goes back to just this understanding, even in quantum physics, that we are a web of energy, all interconnected. And so everything that we're pouring into that net is coming back to us. You know, we don't always know when the timing is. And that is true for your mantra practice because when you're using these, these cosmic sounds, you know, mantra is one form of them. Um, singing bowls, those crystal bowls, that's also, it's another form of that. But when you release these mantras into that network, and you're releasing something that is already coming from that Akashic field, so that, or the zero-point field, as we call now in, in physics, when you're releasing something from that subtlest field, it's going everywhere all at once. I mean, that is one of the most profound gifts that you could pro possibly give to all of humanity, is just your own daily mantra practice. And somebody recently asked me this, I've never been asked this question, you know, that if you weren't a physician, what would you have been as a musician? Which is ironic because, you know, I've had such a lack of musical upbringing, um, but I was like absolutely a musician because if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, which is at least explaining to people the science behind that, which is sacred because we've so overdeveloped the mind that we have to first accept it as an intellectual fact before we can accept its value. If I wasn't doing this, I would absolutely be doing as much as I could to be singing and allowing these vibrations to pour out into the, into the world. Cause I think it's one of the fastest ways that you can heal the world. Oh, it absolutely is. That's um, I don't know if you, you heard about this, but I read that they actually cured some COVID cases in New Delhi using mantras and sound healing. Did you hear about this? I didn't hear about that, but I'm also not, you know, I'm not surprised by it. And, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, like mantras are a part of the medicine. It's, it, that's how it was traditionally. You wouldn't give herbs um, without giving a mantra practice. It all went hand in hand. That's fascinating. So in your research of like unearthing some of this ancient knowledge, have you actually found some different mantras that you hadn't seen before? The biggest one was the one that I'm sharing in, in the book. That was the one that um, it, it has the 
widest capacity, meaning anybody can do it. You know, there are many, many other mantras, some of which I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for. I have been teased with. <laughs> um, there's one in particular that <laughs> my spiritual teacher knows that I'm just, I'm dying for it. <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to be getting it anytime soon. It's a very, very, very powerful mantra for unlocking um, you know, access to, to deeper spiritual uh, states of consciousness. Um, I, I, I'm getting the impression I'm not ready for that one yet, but I'm holding, I'm holding out for that one. But no, we, we, we were given so many of the ancient Siddha mantras um, that are healing. And my husband actually is a, not a yogi, so he's somebody who uses sound for healing and so at the center in India, we would start each morning with the Siddha mantras for healing. And that was part of the, 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 the therapeutic program for the patients is we would, they would first just lie down and they would have a sound bath of him chanting these ancient Siddha mantras. And even now, you know, as we've transitioned back to the U.S., um, he does Nada Yoga, which is the yoga of sound, Nada is referring to sound, where he is using some of the Sanskrit mantras, some of the Siddha mantras. The Siddha mantras are an ancient Tamil, which actually predates even Sanskrit. Wow. And so he, yeah, oh, it's fantastic. So he uses all of these different mantras. He's also used Buddhist mantras. He's used um, Muslim mantras. I mean, he's just used all sorts of mantras depending on what the individual feels comfortable with, if they feel comfortable with a particular tradition, he honors that. So it's still a part of our practice that we use sound healing and not a yoga for, um, for healing. Oh, that's so incredible. And it's, wow, that's so amazing. What a, that sounds like a divine uh, pairing there. Yeah, <laughs> so we, ha we actually had nothing to do with our pairing. So we 100% agree that we would have never chosen this well on our own. <laughs> so another example of just like the divine, uh, all the divine things at play. This is just amazing. I'm so curious now. I'm like, what are the Siddha healing mantras? <laughs> I'm going to be writing you every day after this, just like how you write your teacher. I'll be like, hey, no, and I would be happy to get to you. I don't know them. I mean, he's definitely the one who's like the reservoir of mantras. I am just amazed by his, like his memory capacity for these mantras because, you know, they're complicated. Some of these are, you know, quite long and they're a language that is, extinct and so I'm just always amazed at how he remembers all of them for me I'm impressed the fact that you know I remember the shocker mantra <laughs> I, I feel like a rock star for remembering that so it's a little it's a little tricky because I'm still mad like I'm still I chant along with it sometimes and then I've been trying to like go along with it and there's always a few but yeah, I, I, I love thank you for the explanation because I could see that it was the bija mantras but it was a little different so knowing that it's also combined with om namah shivaya yes. I mean interweaving the, the two together well, I have a, one of my favorite videos is a video about, um, I mean, I know there's many, you know, peoples and saints that have been named Babaji, but there's one incredible video on YouTube that I love of one of the saints named Babaji. And he actually says in that video that the mantra Om Namah Shivaya is more powerful than an atomic bomb. Yes. Well, and, and it, that's, see, when you hear things like that, you think they're being metaphoric though. But the reality is in the hands of somebody who knows how to connect to mantras and how to direct that energy. And, and this is partly going back to your original question of, was it lost or was it hidden? Um, you know, there has to be a certain evolution of the human being before they're just handed over an atomic bomb in the form of, of, of sound. So in the hands of somebody who actually knows how to direct that energy, that is 100% correct. And that's why the subtle meanings of these mantras were not explained to people or how to use some of them. They're not explained to people until you reach certain levels. And maybe that's why I'm not being given that one mantra. I'm just not there yet. I haven't, like, I haven't graduated preschool yet. Um, but they're, cause they're very, very, very powerful. Um, and you know, and, and the way we're using it, and I don't want anybody to think that if they're chanting a mantra, their atomic bombs are going to be going off. The way <laughs> we are using it, it is not the way that, I'm instructing 
and the way that the book explains it, it's all for personal use. You know, it's all for um, personal healing and personal evolution. But I was really surprised when I saw the movie Doctor Strange, uh, which people, you know, I don't usually watch action movies. I watch them a lot now that I've got a teenage son. Um, but when, you know, when that first came out, so many of my friends said, you have to watch this, you have to watch this. And I was so surprised because they're basically explaining yantras, which is the first physical manifestation of, of mantras. They're using yantras as, as portals and to direct energy. Um, I was just so surprised. I was like, yes, this is actually some of the ways in which this was used in the past, that mantras could even be used for destructive, you know, purposes as well. Um, as the same as, you know, as Yantra. So I thought it was amazing that Hollywood was like kind of tuning into the fact that, you know, these sacred shapes, which come from, they're all just visible aspects of, of sacred sound, um, that they have different layers of use, you know, to them. And our use, the way that it's being introduced and the way that we're using it is purely for healing. Yeah, well, mantras are very powerful, and I have a I have a story about working with one. It was like the I think it's it's called the hundred syllable Vajrasattva mantra, which your husband would probably know. It's a Tibetan yeah, Buddhist. It's a Tibetan <laughs> Buddhist mantra, and it's very much a purification mantra. So I decided that I was going to do I think either ten. I think it was ten thousand because it's a long one. So that was quite a that was quite a feat. It's quite a long one. So I think I got up to like 3,000 or 4,000 and then this horrible, terrible thing or so I thought happened that was completely destructive. It completely um, destroyed something that was happening at the time and I thought, oh no, and I got very afraid of that mantra and I didn't finish the practice and I didn't want to chant it. However, several years after the fact that situation revealed itself to be completely bogus. Yeah. It was completely, I was not meant to be in it. There was a lot of deception. I was being lied to and deceived. And that is what the mantra did. It created that massive destruction so that there would be a space created and I would actually get away from the situation, which I didn't right away because I didn't tune into what was, you know, it was very deceptive. I didn't really know what was going on. But now that I look back on it, I'm like, oh, the mantra was actually doing exactly what it was meant to do, which was yes. purifying me from that very unpure situation that I had found myself in at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but so when you go into the mantra practice, you know, people will sometimes go, oh, and, and this is also why we only say 20 minutes a day. Um, even if you think you've got everything together, like do not do more than 20 minutes a day. I thought I had everything together. And then <laughs> I went deeper into the world of mantra and I was just like, oh, no, I do not, <laughs> you know, that you really want to allow for integration to happen in your life because the mantra is just, it's, it's a very powerful resonant frequency. And as you do it regularly, every cell in your body is going to start resonating to that higher frequency. And so everything in your life that is not in alignment with that higher frequency must change. And if you're changing very rapidly, it can feel like this is painful, you know. But, of course, time will tell that, oh, this was actually completely appropriate for you. But that's why we want to go at a pace, like, unless you are on the direct guidance of a spiritual, like, a bona fide spiritual teacher, um, you know, you want to just go at a pace of, like, 20 minutes a day of the chakra mantra, and just slowly allow things to shift in a way that it's not, you know, overly disruptive because otherwise people do have that rubber band effect of they, they kind of pull themselves too far and then snap, you know, back. And that's why I love this chakra mantra because it's just, it's just, it's harmonizing. It's normalizing all of the chakras because the lower chakras also have tremendous, tremendous benefit. Um, in the Hindu deity, Ganesha is associated with that root chakra. And when you look at all of the things that that energy provides, the removal of obstacles, if that root chakra is not completely open, you cannot remove the obstacles as you move up to the higher chakras. And so there's real value in doing things sequentially, doing things, you know, slowly and doing things and just allowing them to unfold very naturally. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo that. Please don't, 
<laughs> Try this at home, but not for more than 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because it's true. And this mantra in particular, I, I can't even, I feel like I can't even listen to it for much longer than that either. Yeah. And a lot of mantras, you know, I'll put them on in the background, even play them like all day and night while I'm sleeping or just around the house. But that one just intuitively, it, it does feel exactly. very powerful. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with us. I could chat with you forever about so many things, but please let everyone know where they can find you and all of your wonderful offerings. Um, the easiest way is just on my website. It's just drcolreetchaudhary.com, my name, and it's just D-R. Um, and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And um, if anybody wants to learn more about sound medicine, my book is available on Amazon and all of kind of the traditional ways that people get books. Um, and I'll be announcing over the next several months um, several new projects that I'll be launching. So for anybody who wants to stay in tune with that, social media is the best route. And it's just under my name, Dr. Colby Chaudhary. Yeah, and you have a, a mailing list too, I believe, don't you? Yes, and right now I haven't been producing the newsletter, but if anybody's interested, they can just write in and we'll put you on um, a mailing list for future news. Yes, that's right. I know because I went on your mailing list right away before I could buy the chocolate. <laughs> but it's interesting how it's almost like the vibration of this mantra. It has a life of its own because I know for me, I just was like this. I was like, what is this? Who is this? And yeah, I have to say your, your book is incredible. And it's the kind of thing like I've listened to it once and I feel like I want to listen to it again because there's just so much that's contained within there that I think is really important for people like me that are more kind of like, you know, we're more intuitive. I think it's really important for me anyway. I know in my life to gather some of the facts too, because like you said, a lot of people, they require and really need these facts, more scientific information in order to understand. But doesn't it also, I mean, this is what I've heard from a lot of musicians who I've spoken to is, doesn't it also give you a sense of, you know, not only pride, but greater respect for what you're doing to know that you're doing something that's actually deeply steeped in science one of the beauties that I see in the Siddha tradition is they were both poetic and scientific. And I think we oftentimes separate these out of you're either artistic, you know, or you're scientific. And I think one of the beauties of sound medicine in particular is it pulls people from both of those sides and, and brings them together to really bring some respect to what each is doing. Yes, I think this it really, is I think it really validates like music as a very, very authentic, you know, form of healing. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it, I've only scratched the surface of this in my studies, but like Indian, you know, classical Hindustani music is essentially a, a healing art. All of the different yes. ragas and the sounds yes. and the tones are all in themselves. There's a whole healing system contained within that system of music too. And music is mathematical. So it really all does match up. So I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this time that we're living in. And I hope that we start to meet a lot of these things because they, they match up. <laughs> They're not actually that far away from one another. They are the truth. Oh, thank you so much, everyone. Dr. Kuri Chowdhury, please check out her books and her Chakra Chant is on um, iTunes, I believe. Yes. yes, not iMusic, iTunes. That was my mistake. I was looking for it on there. But um, definitely check out the mantra, check out her book. And thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Simran
been listening to A Voice for Love. This is Surya Devi. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this series inspires you to discover your own voice for love so you can use it to be a force for good in your life and in the world. You can find me at suryadeviworld.com. I wish you great joy, good health, and the courage to speak up for what you believe in. Peace.